leading you astray. Please, please be seated. Well, uh, we've been in a study through various high points of the book of Romans, not going through the whole thing, but taking a special interest in various parts which were not only rediscovered and re-emphasized at the time of the, Revol- at the, of the Reformation, but, but that which created a revolution in the world, uh, certainly in the church and in Christianity. Uh, I'd like to give you an appendix to that tonight, one area where we uh, learn something more negative, uh, as a negative example anyway, from the mouth of Luther. I've been quoting him extensively in this series, but we are told in the scripture to call no man teacher. We have one teacher, which is the Christ. We remember there's many reasons for that, and uh, anything that Luther uh, was able to teach us of the word, we value anything and where he would lead us astray, we reject. And so I'd like to illustrate that to you this evening and to turn, as I say, this is a more unusual study to Romans chapter 11 and to uh, pick up here starting in verse 11. Breaking into this argument here, the whole section has to do with the, the question raised at the beginning Um, what about the uh, people of Israel? Has the word of God failed in regard to them? He has various arguments about God's dealing. Has he's always preserved a remnant? (coughs) As God has certainly not cast off his people, as Paul says, I myself am a Jew, but also that God has purposes for his dealings with the world in certain ways, ways that are described here, starting in verse 11, and uh, I'll be reading down to verse 32. Excuse me. I had some peanuts right before I left the house. They seem to be just stuck in the back of my throat. Excuse me. Thank you. Romans 11, verse 11. All right. I say then, have they, that is the Jewish people, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, And you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you don't support the root. The root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. 
on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the wild olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has commanded them all to disobedience, excuse me, God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, may your mercy be upon us this evening as we consider again these uh, interesting, these hopeful, uh, these dark words of the future of your world and of your dealings with the nations. We pray that the Jews may be called and the Gentiles uh, also brought into the kingdom of God as We uh, pray for your kingdom to come. We recognize that you are the God of the circumcised and of the uncircumcised. May you haste the day of the fulfillment of these prophetic words for Christ's sake. Amen. We are living in a very remarkable time in the history of the Jewish people. Perhaps you don't know it, but especially right here in America. It's gotten almost no press. You certainly won't hear the developments that I'm telling you tonight on national public radio. The first I heard of this going on was after a 2013 Pew survey of Jewish Americans was reported by World Magazine, where I read, quote, of all the religious U.S. adults who identify as Jewish, about one-third are conservative or orthodox, one-third are reform, and one-third are Christians. That's about 1.7 million Jewish Christians now in the United States, as of eight years ago, I should say. Another 2017 survey by Barna, also reported in World Magazine, that 23% of all American Jewish millennials, whether they self-identify as religious or not, 23% say they believe Jesus was God in human form. I don't know if the world has ever seen such a large movement of Jewish conversion, at least since the days of Jesus. Unrelated to this, it was some years ago that I decided I'd 
go back to the book of Acts specifically, and also the letters, but to, to review how it was that these disciples took the gospel with such effect to the world. What means did they use? What did they commend to us? What means were so signally blessed in the advancement of the gospel in those early days? And I realized, as I listed out 11 things, that I was doing two of those 11. And I I recognized that one of the things that I was not doing, that they certainly did, especially as they entered a new town, was that they went to the synagogue, um, making the point, as Romans puts it, that uh, the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek in fact, when Peter, uh, excuse me, when Paul went into the synagogue and explained to them of Christ, he said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. Peter, likewise, to his Jewish brethren, said, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with, you, with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth should be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning everyone away from you from your iniquities. Okay. They had a certain rhythm. There was a certain process they would go through to, to go to the Jews first and say, Hey, You're the sons of the prophets. To you first, this word has come. It was necessary that we speak the word of God to you. This is the promise that God has made and he's now fulfilled. And I realized, well, uh, still the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek, I suppose. But I don't even know any Jewish people in town. I guess there's a synagogue. Maybe I should go. I went for three weeks, uh, just worshiped there. After the end of the third week, the guy that ran the service, came up to me and said, so what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, well, I'm actually preaching on uh, the book of Daniel in a, in a few months. Would you like to, uh, a few weeks, would you like to read that? Have you ever read the, the prophets? He said, no. We, we had a group that tried, but uh, you know, we, we, we read the Torah. We read only portions of the prophets. We, uh, let's see if we, would you mind if I ask a few other people from the synagogue? Absolutely not. Uh, we went through Daniel they said, uh, that's weird. It's more Christian than Jewish. And I realized they didn't have any conception of even the promises. The portions that they read of the scriptures are so curtailed. We started back at Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel and God makes a covenant with David. And I said, how does that change your faith? He said, I don't, I don't know. I went through, went through went through Malachi, went through parts of Luke, the book of Acts, the book of Romans, COVID hit. And I realized as we were going through the difficult parts of the prophets for them, as we were going through portions of the New Testament, that they had a very visceral reaction to Christians and to the very idea of Jesus. Not intellectual as much as visceral. That these are the people that have destroyed our peoples over the centuries. The people that have uh, murdered us and uh, persecuted us from land to land. That is still very much on the heart of Jewish people today. 
Jewish evangelism was much on Luther's heart, even from the early days of the Reformation. They also had been treated terribly in his time. In fact, they've been treated terribly for centuries. There's trouble off and on, of course, I suppose, with any population that's other, but it got especially bad in October of 1347 as some Genoese trading ships arrived on the coast of Sicily with men dead at the oars. They had black swellings that oozed blood and pus. And that black plague they carried, as it was called, very quickly began to spread through Europe. So much so that by the mid-1350s, the plague had taken one in three lives from India to Iceland. Populations were so ravaged and in a state of despair. What was the cause of this plague that would seemingly spread from house to house with no human contact? The plague arrived in the fall of 1347. By May of 1348, the culprits had apparently confessed under torture that the Jews had been poisoning the wells and the water supplies. Riots against the Jews began all over Europe. Many city rulers ordered their arrest or banishment. Many of the Jewish communities who lived at peace with their Christian neighbors since the days of the Roman Empire, who had to endure other accusations against them that they perhaps had sacrificed children during the Passover to obtain blood for their unleavened bread, that had happened in the 12th, that rumor happened in the 12th century. Other conspiracy theories were around. But this apparent confession of the Jews under torture, of poisoning wells from which the population would drink death, spread a vicious strain of anti-Semitism across Europe, everywhere. Come to Wittenberg with me and I'll show you what I mean. It'll take you less than 10 minutes today to walk the length of the cobblestone street of Judenstrasse, or Jewish street, in the sleepy eastern German town of Lutherstadt, Wittenberg. On the street's western end stands the Wittenberg Schlosskirche, the castle church, where Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. Nearby is an enormous 360-degree panorama celebrating Luther's work in the Reformation. A few blocks to the east, behind the old market square, is the Stadtkirche, uh, the Wittenberg Town Church, St. Mary's, where Luther delivered so many of his now famous sermons, uh, the majority of them the site of his first celebration of the services in the language of the people in German instead of Latin. And around the back of Luther's church, around the back of the Stadtkirche, You'll see today carved into the sandstone a, sandstone, a sculpture, I don't know how big, not very big, I suppose, something like this, that had been done in the 1300s, a sandstone sculpture of what was popularly called the Judensau, Judensau, or the Jewish pig, a common form of medieval iconography. Uh, Luther himself will describe it to you. Here in Wittenberg, in our parish church, there is a sow carved into the stone under which lie young pigs and Jews who are sucking. Behind the sow stands a rabbi who, lifting up the right leg of the sow, 
raises behind the sow, bows down, and looks with great effort into the Talmud. End quote. That was the situation into which Luther was born. He thought that with the recovery of the gospel underway, surely such good news must be taken to the Jews. And so in 1519, again, barely after the beginning of the Reformation work, Luther challenged the Roman doctrine of servitus iudiorum, that is the uh, law that was way back from Justinian in the 6th century uh, that uh, relegated the Jews to uh, less than uh, civil status. Absurd theologians, he wrote, defend hatred for the Jews. What Jew would consent to enter our ranks when he sees the cruelty and enmity we wreak on them, that our behavior toward them, we less resemble Christians than beasts? He had studied his book of Romans. He had a passion. He had an expectation that the end times were at hand and this time that now the gospel must go to the Jews had surely come. I remind you what we've already read in the book of Romans by way of review, that all by the way of introduction, by way of review. There have been tensions in the Jewish Gentile Christian community way back when, even from the beginnings. Well, as a matter of fact, every time that Paul entered a synagogue, it seemed. Uh, a riot was right around the corner with false accusations and perhaps a stoning or a, uh, a beating. And he would have to go from city to city, therefore. Uh, the emperor had kicked out all the Jews, Christian and non, from Rome a few years earlier, you remember. There had been tensions right from the beginning. Even in this Roman church, it seems there were still some tensions, and Paul very uh, artfully with the gospel, has been able to bring the people together. He says, you know, the real difference in the world is not Jew and Gentile, because Jew and Gentile alike are condemned by the law. Chapters 1, 2, and the first half of 3. All have fallen short of the glory of God, both the pagan idolater and the religious moralist. He then goes and shows how they are all, likewise, redeemed in Christ. In chapter 5, the real difference in the world is between those who are in Adam and those in Christ. Chapters 6 and 7, uh, well, you, you, you get the point. And so, as we, as we come now before this passage, Paul continues to deal pastorally, now switching not from these great gospel truths, but to the progress of the gospel in history. True, God called Abraham and said that in him all the families of the earth should be blessed. There was this great olive tree of Israel through which salvation was to blossom to the world. Many of those branches cut off, it's true, because of unbelief. You, wild olive shoots, have been grafted in among them, you Gentiles. But you must remember that God has a purpose in all these things. Do you understand the purpose? I don't want you to be proud in your own conceits, he says. This passage I'm about to explain to you in summary teaches nothing of the dispensational or the Zionist nonsense that people are claiming, at least as far as I can see. 
there are not two different trees, Israel and the church. There's clearly one olive tree, the root being holy of the patriarchs and the branches therefore being holy. Unbelieving Jews cut out, believing Gentiles grafted in and share in the nourishing sap. In the church, there's no more Jew and Gentile, of course, only one in Christ Jesus. I want to make all those things plain. Nevertheless, Paul is describing a certain flow of history now, a, a, a flow that we also need to understand lest we be wise in our own conceits or be proud over those from whom we have received the word. This whole chapter uh, contrasting between the now of Paul's day and ours, and the what will be of the future, perhaps it's beginning to dawn, as I said. I'd like to first look at what Paul is saying, and then look at why Paul is saying it, and then the way I'd like to make some particular points of application as we see Luther change from the view I just described that he had to a very different view later on to his shame. Well, what is Paul saying? He's saying that this time of Gentile disobedience, when God permitted nations to go their own way, is drawing to a close. In bygone generations, he says elsewhere, God allowed nations to walk in their own ways. God gave them over, verse uh, chapter 1 and 2, God gave them over to ungodliness and unrighteousness for a time. But now, he says, this time has changed that there, uh, that th- 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 uh, now these nations are being brought in. That the time of Jewish disobedience is at hand, when all but the remnant of Israel is preserved by grace, and the good news of Messiah goes freely to the nations. Again, as he preached in other words, since you reject this, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, and they will hear it, says Paul. The time is at hand, a time now of Jewish disobedience, when all but the remnant preserved by grace should reject the Messiah, but the nations of the earth receive mercy. Yet even this is not the final state. And you can imagine now two columns in what uh, we read, what Israel is like at the moment, in disobedience and hardness, and what Israel will be, he says, in the future. Verse uh, 11, as the New American Standard, I think, very nicely renders it, now their transgression is. How much more will their fulfillment be? Verse 15, their rejection is. Now it's time of rejection. What will their acceptance be? Now they've been broken off because of unbelief, verse 22. How much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own tree? For God's able to do it, verse 24. Now a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved. Verse 32, God has shut up all in disobedience, Jew and Gentile, according to their time that he may show mercy to all. What is the present state of Israel? Well, it is then as it was, as it is now. At the present time, verse 5, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. The rest were blinded. Verse 11, they stumbled. That was the situation then. That's the situation now. Perhaps it's starting to change, but 
That is the situation of Israel's disobedience. But what will become of them, Paul says? What, what does the future tense and passage after passage tell us? Well, through their fall, verse 11, their fall into unbelief, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to the nations. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, if their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? They're, cast, they're being cast away, verse 15, has been the reconciling of the world. They were broken off and the Gentiles are being brought in. That was, the, that was their casting away. But the reconciling of the world, well, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? The kingdom was taken from them and people from the east and the west, Jesus has said, they are coming in to feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, what will their acceptance be then but life from the dead? Verse 25, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So you see how he says it again and again in various ways. There's the present blindness in part, but then God will fulfill the promise of his covenant and turn ungodliness from Jacob. One more time, verse 30 and 31. As you Gentiles were once disobedient to God and yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these Jews have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. God is going to provoke them to jealousy through his kindness to you. He is going to use you to save them. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, says, I even magnify my own ministry. I make the most of my work, hoping that I'm going to persuade some of my own brethren according to the flesh. You see, you have a certain role in history. They had a role as a light to the nations. You have a role now as a light to the nations and to his people Israel. That's what he is saying. But he he very clearly applies this all the way through. That's what Paul is saying. Why is Paul saying this? Well, I have three things for you. One, so that you should not be proud. The tendency, the natural tendency for Gentiles is to regard unbelieving Israel as nothing, since we believing Gentiles have become partakers of all the promises in the new covenant. But what does Paul say? These Jews were cut out of their tree because of unbelief, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. You become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, a typical symbol of Israel. Do not boast against the branches. And if you boast, remember that you Gentiles don't support the root. That root, the Jews, they support you. Well, branches are broken off, but I can be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief. Don't be haughty again, but fear. If God didn't spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. You need to continue in his kindness. Well, as receivers of the promises, you need not to boast in your privileges. Beware lest what happened to the Jews even happen to you. Further, he goes on to say, don't boast as though God could never graft the Jews ever back in again. Well, God is able to do it. I don't desire that you should be ignorant of this mystery, brethren, lest you become wise in your own conceits. In his 1523 essay, that Jesus was born a Jew. 
Luther condemned the inhuman treatment of the Jews, and he urged Christians to treat them kindly. His fervent desire was that the Jews would at last hear the gospel proclaimed clearly and to be moved to embrace the Messiah. So, quote, Look, if I had been a Jew, he said, and had seen such dolts and blockheads govern and teach the Christian faith, I would have sooner become a pig than a Christian. They have dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. They have done little else than deride them and seize their property. When they baptize them, we show them nothing of Christian doctrine or life, but only subject them to popishness and mockery. If the apostles, who were also Jews, had dealt with us Gentiles as we Gentiles deal with the Jews, there would never have been a Christian among the Gentiles. When we are inclined to boast of our position as Christians, we should remember that we are but Gentiles while the Jews are of the lineage of Christ. We are aliens and in-laws. They are blood relatives, cousins and brothers of our Lord. Therefore, if one is to boast of the flesh and the blood The Jews are actually nearer to Christ than we are. If we really want to help them, we must be guided in our dealings with them, not by papal law, but by the law of Christian love. Uh, The the Pope had denied them civil rights. We must receive them cordially and permit them to trade and work with us if they may have occasion and opportunity to associate with us and hear our Christian teaching and witness our Christian life. If some of them should proved stiff-necked, what of it? After all, we ourselves are not all good Christians either. We want to deal with them in a Christian manner now. Offer them the Christian faith that they would accept the Messiah, who is even their cousin and has been born of their flesh and blood and is rightly Abraham's seed of which they boast. Even so, I'm concerned that Jewish blood may no longer become watery and wild. First of all, you should propose to them that they should be converted to the Messiah and allow themselves to be baptized, that one may see that this is a serious matter to them. If not, we would, uh, we would not permit them to live among us, for Christ commands us to be baptized and believe in him, even though we cannot now believe so strongly as we should. God is still patient with us. Well, I go on a little bit. You see the reformer's heart in this, that they're... Uh, There should be an appeal, an advance of the gospel among these people who have been so shamefully treated by the papacy. Paul writes this not only in order that we might be humble, in order that uh, uh, that we might be humble, he also writes it so that we would not be ignorant of this mystery, but cooperate with God's plan. Paul, the apostles of the Gentiles, magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles, conscious that God has a plan to provoke to jealousy those of his own flesh and blood. That's why he operates as he does, also preaching first in the synagogue and going to the Gentiles. He is again hoping to provoke his countrymen to jealousy. My heart's desire and prayer for God to Israel is that they may be saved. What about you? Are you on board with God's plan? Paul understood God's plan was to provoke them to jealousy. It was God's plan that through the mercy shown you, they may now receive mercy. And so Luther said, let's get to work. Finally, that you should know how to view these unbelieving Jews. How are we to regard modern-day Israel? 
There is a great deal of confusion about that today, by the way, as I go down Route 11 and I see the uh, uh, Mogan David, the, uh, the Jewish flag flying at church after church. I, I realize that uh, Zionism is, is taking over. Um, uh, how are we to regard the Jews in, and out of, in or out of their nation today? Lorraine Bettner, I judge incorrectly, writes, it may seem harsh to say that God is done with the Jews, but the fact of the matter is that he's through with them, at least as a unified national group. This popular view is that there is uh, no future salvation for ethnic unbelieving Israel. There is a very different dispensational view, which I won't get all into, but then when the Messiah comes, there's going to become a, uh, a rapture of the church and then a whole bunch of Jewish evangelists, and they're going to bring the gospel to the world. Very different. I don't think that either one of these are even close to the truth. The Bible has this nuanced approach to the Jews. Yes, concerning the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake. Enemies. And they surely need to be saved. And that's why Paul is magnifying his ministry. They need the Messiah. These are enemies. They are, they are, they are opposing Paul from city to city. They are accusing him of vile lies. They are seeking to take his life. They are enemies. But... Concerning the, the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, that is, the patriarchs. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. He says in this passage, God has made a covenant them, with them that he will keep. Quoting both Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27, to establish it by two witnesses. That God's covenant, God's promise, and his gifts are irrevocable. He will turn ungodliness from Jacob, just as he promised. And then, all Israel will be saved in such a way. In other words, God will not go back on his promise. And these things we therefore have to hold together as Gentiles, that on the one hand, considering the gospel, they're enemies. Concerning election, they are beloved, and God has a plan for them yet. Unbelieving ethnic Israel is yet chosen and beloved for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God has this plan, a plan that is now playing out in history, that you Gentiles were once disobedient, and now you've obtained mercy through their disobedience, verse 30. Now these Jews who are disobedient, they will receive mercy through the mercy shown you. God has committed all men to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Once again, what advantage has the Jew over the Gentile? Alike condemned, alike redeemed in Christ, God has committed both Jew and Gentile for a time to disobedience, that in time he might show Jew and Gentile mercy in his way. And this eternal plan for the salvation of all nations, Jews included, is what concludes this passage. And what can we say but, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who's known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor or who's ever given to God that God should repay him for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Stand in mercy, wisdom, power, and the providence of God who through such things brings his salvation to the world. Luther uh, waded into Jewish evangelism. He got a lot more than he bargained for. He got a lot of, uh, well, according to his words, lies, blasphemies, obstinance, resentment, hatred. There was a visceral hatred 
for hundreds of years now of mistreatments at the hand of Christians. Luther uh, read a book by Anton Margarita called The Whole Jewish Belief. Margarita was a convert from Judaism to Christianity. He became Lutheran. And he published, well, I don't know how else to say it, but a very anti-Semitic book. You say, he was a Jew. Yeah, he was a Jew. He left and became a Christian, and he published, well, it certainly, surely contained a ton of lies. His book was discredited uh, at a public debate in front of the emperor and his court, and Margarita was actually expelled from the empire. In the meantime, Luther read the book in 1539, and uh, 1543, three years before his death, in works on the Jews were a very long treatise called On the Jews and Their Lies. He read of them poisoning the wells. He read of them kidnapping Christian children in order to use their blood for their Passover sacrament. He read of the various things that they would do in, in secret, and, uh, and Luther's blood boiled. Fake news, then as now, turned the reformer from this passionate evangelist to one who said, quote, set fire to their synagogues or schools. Let them be razed to the ground and destroyed. Let Jewish prayer books and Talmudic writings in which idolatries, lies, and cursing and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. May their rabbis be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. Luther argued that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them. And the only thing that Jews could do is be put to forced labor. Give them a flail, an axe, a hoe, and a spade so that young, strong Jews and Jewesses could eat their bread in the sweat of their brow. He followed this with uh, a couple of sermons accusing them of being our public enemies. Quote, they do not stop blaspheming our Lord Jesus Christ, calling the Virgin Mary a whore, Christ a bastard, and challenging uh, us as changelings or abortions. If they could kill us all, they would gladly do it. This is after some personal experience, so not all of these things are just made up. They do it often, especially those who pose as physicians, though they sometimes help, for the devil helps to finish it in the end. They can practice medicine in French Switzerland. They administer poison to someone from which he could die in a month, a year, 10 or 20 years. They are able to practice this art. He goes and he repeats a, a long string of lies which uh, were in Margarita's book and which had been circulating in the country for some time. I, I could go on, but uh, Luther is remembered for this later period. He's remembered as a virulent anti-Semite and, well, as you could guess, the German party resurrected Luther's teachings and used them as a powerful way for propaganda in the Nazi time. Well, I'm giving you much more history, perhaps, than you would like to know. Call no man teacher, said our Lord. Let's get with God's program. We must get the gospel out to all nations. And, and the last, it seems, but not least, will be Israel. The situation perhaps seems hopeless, and yet we already see perhaps the first fruits of a change. Maybe these are the very end times. 
promised. Zechariah 12, I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. This, except for the remnant, has not been fulfilled. O Israel, your house has been left to you desolate. Assuredly, I say to you, you'll not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May the time come. Let us pray together. Truly, great are the depths of the riches and wisdom of your knowledge, O God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How past finding out are your ways. You have committed all men over to disobedience, but only so that you should have mercy upon them all. You are good and gracious, even as we have received such mercy. We pray that through us, mercy may flow to the nations until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, but that also so all Israel may be saved. We, we pray, our Father, for those who are laboring even now in various congregations and synagogues in the land of Israel and the many places around the world in which that ancient people, the people of the physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still reject the promises and the covenant that you made with their fathers. We pray that you would haste the day in which they also may receive mercy, that we together might be one church in Jesus with neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but that Christ should be all in all.